You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. I'm going to piggyback off what Doug and uh, Tyler was just talking about. Uh, those of you that hear about us partnering with cities and churches across the uh, United States, of course, we do it in, in other countries as well, but strategically, Boston and the Denver area, let me tell you a couple things about those. Um, obviously, what we did is we picked places based on research that don't have many churches uh, based on their population. And so that's why Boston and then that's why the Denver area. Um, but there's a second reason that we considered in the formula because we want you guys to be able to go there. And you're going to find out all kinds of reasons on how you can go um, or ways you can go. But we did the math and we were strategic because you can go through Allegiant to Boston and Denver for like $99. Uh, like common sense, right? And uh, to help us continue to go there. And uh, if you work for Legion, I don't mean to knock it at all. I'm thankful. I fly Legion everywhere, but it's crazy. Like you, you buy the ticket and you give it to the person. They check the luggage and all of a sudden you go to the area and I, they check you into the flight and then they give you the seat. And like they're directing, same person is directing the traffic. And then they get in the plane and fly. So I think that's how they save <laughs> all the money. But I am so thankful for Allegiant. Um, I hate flying. I feel like I'm breathing everyone else's air, but uh, for the sake of us partying together and doing some incredible stuff, uh, we did pick those cities because of the need for churches, um, but also the reasonable airfare uh, for us to go. All right, so let me jump into the message today. We've been uh, started a series called Through the Eyes of a Mother, and really we've been looking at aspects of Jesus' life through Mary's eyes. Uh, week one, we looked at um, the conception a week two was uh, the, the delivery, you know, the pregnancy itself. And um, today, I want us to look at the life, the life of Jesus through Mary's eyes, in particular his ministry. Uh, to begin, I want to ask a couple questions. Number one, how many attended a wedding in the last 12 months? Will you raise your hand? Lots of us, all right. Uh, how many of you plan to attend a wedding in the next 12 months? Will you raise your hands? Oh, like whether it's a friend, a neighbor, a family member, or yours, right? Um, many in this room that have been involved in weddings or will be involved in weddings are tied to the planning aspect of weddings. Uh, it's always interesting to me how some of the mothers get really involved, the mothers of the bride, in the planning of the wedding. And then the, the, um, the way that the fathers of the bride get involved in the wedding are pretty much... Uh, walking them down the long aisle and giving the checkbook, right? That's about as far as it goes for the dads. Um, but today what I want us to do is I want us to look at a wedding where Mary is invited, Jesus is invited, and five of the disciples are invited. Uh, five because it's early in Jesus' ministry and he's not yet selected the other seven. What will happen is at this wedding that, that Mary's invited, um, some things are going to unfold as she looks at what Jesus does. Now, this is not in the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's not at the end. It's right at the beginning. Um, John chapter 2, if you want to follow along. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. So it's a small town in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. By the way, pause there. If you ever wonder what Jesus was like, say it all the time. People, nothing like Jesus, love spending time with Jesus. And Jesus loved spending time with people that were nothing like him. I mean, he's getting invited to weddings. When the wine was gone, here we go, awkward tension. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
I think she said it with a little panic in her voice because you got to understand the first century in Jewish custom, it was a big deal to have a wedding. Like the town would pretty much shut down. Weddings would last seven days. I want us to think about today for us. Um, When it comes to us, let's say going to a restaurant or ordering something to drink, uh, today we've got lots of options. You can can get water, sweet tea, unsweet tea, Diet Coke, Coke, Coke Zero, Dr. Pepper, all this stuff. But back then, you got two options. You got water and you got wine. When it comes to the wedding festivities for seven days, it is a shame. It's a tragedy to think that the only thing that's going to be offered for all seven days is water. And so Mary puts it on Jesus' radar that they've they've run out of wine. Now I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Jesus is going to take care of the situation, going to create more wine out of the water. And in so doing, it's going to be his first miracle. That's crazy to me. Like, like if I were God, which you guys are very glad that I'm not, right? If I were God, my first miracle would be different. Perhaps healing a child so that people would see how much I love children. Or healing someone that has leprosy or someone that's been paralyzed. Someone that, that has died, I'd bring them back from the dead. But, but Jesus does it different. I'm telling you, his first miracle is at a wedding where he turns water into wine to keep the party going. Ready? Does this surprise you? I mean, after all, there are so many other things that he could have done. But the first miracle is going this route. Now, here's, here's why I teach this today. Different aspects of different people in this room. Uh, Some of you, you're exploring faith, and I'm so glad you're here. We are thrilled you're here. Like a neighbor brought you, or uh, some guy or girl brought you, or a family member brought you back. Um, And you're trying to put together the pieces. My prayer, honestly, has been that that this story today would provide a piece that that might make some of this click. There are others in this room that are, you're going through a difficult, difficult season of disappointment. And you've found that your walk with God has drifted. You've got a lot of questions. My prayer is that this story today would address some of those questions. There are others today in the room, right? Your, your faith is old and cold. It's almost become stale. My prayer is that as we study this, that you would be refreshed, you would be reawakened. Your faith would be revitalized. This story will build so Be patient as it builds because there's three different parts. Part number one has to do with the hour. Now, remember, we're in Cana. There are five new disciples, fresh with Jesus, early in his ministry. Um, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. Now, notice Joseph, Mary's husband, is not in the picture. It is assumed that by this point he has passed away. So Jesus is 30 years old, the beginning of his ministry, probably the man of the house. So questions that we could ask, does she come to him because he's the head of the house? Or Jesus, they run out of wine. Does she come to him because he has resources, meaning he works? Does she come to him because he's wise? Does she come to him because he cares about people? Does she come to him because he always knows what to say? But saying something in this situation doesn't seem like it'd work. Does she come to him because he always knows what to do? Uh, we'll find out, but the truth of the matter is she comes to him because she knows the shame and embarrassment on behalf of a family at a wedding 
that's hosting a wedding in the first century culture that has run out of wine. I mean, even imagine this, like, like the father of the bride, when he finds out that the family has run out of wine, it was the groom's responsibility, you're gonna take care of my daughter and you can't even take care of the wedding? What you'll see is this is more than a social hiccup. It's shame. It's embarrassment for the family. And when Mary points out to Jesus that they've run out of, the, out of the wine, you would think, I would think that Jesus would say, sure, mom, what do you need? Like, like serving is my privilege. I'd be happy to help out. Nevertheless, listen to verse four, kind of surprised. Woman, why do you involve me? Wouldn't expect that, would you? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, when he says, woman, do you involve me? I thought maybe in the Greek, it sounds a little bit sweeter, but when you look there, it doesn't. It's strange. But I want you to consider this. He's 30. Can't help but wonder, is this the first time that Jesus has distanced himself from the will of his mom? It's like he's letting his mom know, hey, hey, mom, uh, not yet. Mom, there's one voice that I'm listening to from this moment forward. I'm taking my cues through him. It's my heavenly father. You notice he says a statement that I want to emphasize. My hour has not yet come. This is why point number one is the hour. In John's gospel, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, John consistently references the hour. The hour is the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus knows that it is pending. Every time the hour is mentioned, he knows the clock is ticking. Every time the hour is mentioned, he knows the hourglass is glued to the table. Every time the hour is mentioned, he knows that suffering is right around the corner. Let me show you how it shows up in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 20 early in his ministry, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. How about before the last supper, John 12, my soul is troubled, Jesus said. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to the hour. And right around the corner, he's going to be crucified before the before the arrest in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So let's go back to the wedding. Party, dancing, celebration, laughter, eating, and drinking. Ready? Even at the beginning of his earthly ministry, the cross is casting its shadow. It's why he says, Mom, my hour has not yet come. It's like he looks past his mom. He looks past the wedding. Mom, do you want me to remove shame? Do you want me to bring joy? Someday I will. But that hour, my hour has not yet come. And you're expecting his mom to say, well, okay. And you're expecting his mom to not really be offended. Watch what happens. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. It's like she completely disregarded everything that he said. Now the story shifts from the hour to the water. John chapter 2, verse 6. Nearby stood 
six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Cue the drums. Six 20 to 30 gallon jars of water. For ceremonial washing, they could hold, let's say, do the math, 120 to 180 gallons of water. But this is not water for drinking water. This is ceremonial water, to which we ask the question, okay, what is this about, this concept of ceremonial water? Well, the four accounts in the Gospels of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading John. But in Mark, Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's kind of action-packed. Mark doesn't use so much emphasis on the words of Jesus as he does the actions of Jesus. But think about this. Mark was written specifically to Romans. And what happens is Roman culture did not completely understand Jewish culture. So periodically when something would happen in the gospel of Mark that was tied to the Jewish culture, Mark, the author, would call time out and he would explain the Jewish custom. And there's a time, for example, that Jesus gets in trouble concerning how he responds about Jewish ceremonial washing. Listen to Mark 7. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now there's a cadence here. The cadence that was followed according to Jewish custom, this is not like, um, this is not like hand sanitizer. This is ceremonial washing. Like you go to the marketplace, you pick up items that you want, you put them back down, you don't want it. You decide to keep this one, you bring it to the house. If you don't ceremonially wash, the sinners that touched it before you have defiled you. What Jesus is saying is the problem isn't what's going into your mouth. The problem is what comes from your heart. Listen, he unfolds. Mark 7, 21. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Like, the problem is not out there with them. The problem is in here with me. And guess what? 180 gallons of water ain't going to fix it. Guys, I have a messed up heart. You have a messed up heart. And this ceremonial stuff is not what it's about. The same author of the book of John later would write three small books to Christians called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Great name, right? You get to the end of 1st John chapter 5. I love it because there were times in my life that I would really struggle on whether or not I was a follower of Jesus Christ. It's crazy that I dealt with doubt. But at the end of 1st John 5, he says, He gets to the end of the letter. He says, hey, these things, meaning this entire book, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you would know. John's like, let me tell you how to know if you love Jesus. And he goes back to chapter one. He says, let's talk about cleansing. Let's talk about real purifying on behalf of what Jesus did. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he will forgive us. Look here, and purify us. Like cleanse us. Not the water, but Jesus. So back to this water. We got to ask the question, what do they do with this water? Well, John chapter 2, verse 7. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Keep in mind, they don't have plumbing. They don't have the privilege of a water hose. They go to the well, they lower pitchers, and they fill up every one of these containers to the tippy top. If you want to know how serious the Jewish culture took ceremonial washing, you had 180 gallons of this stuff at a wedding. But Jesus is doing something different with the water. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the one that planned all the details. They're carrying it to the master of the banquet, and it's interesting to these guys that they kind of got the water and filled them up because what they're pulling out to give to the master of the banquet looks nothing like what they put in there. Verse 8, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, but he did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Guys, get this. Jesus doesn't leverage the first miracle to say, ah, get ready for some magic, like abracadabra. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here is my first miracle. He just tells a group of people to dip into a well and to fill these jugs with water. The servants knew. The disciples probably knew. Mary knew. But the master of the banquet didn't have a clue. Listen to why. Verse 9. Master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, Hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you guys saved the best till now. Like nobody does it this way. Why'd y'all save the good stuff till now? And here's a summary. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now get ready. This is miracle number one, but it doesn't use the word miracle. It uses the word sign. Signs are interesting because they always point to something. Always. Imagine with me um, a, long, a long flight. Imagine with me a trip to Asheville and you've drank plenty of water. Imagine a, a ball game. Imagine a movie and you've drank plenty of water. What's going to happen in a moment? You're going to look for a sign like this, Right? Signs always point to something. I had one of the most humiliating moments in my life several years ago at Thompson Bowling Arena. After a ball game, I just had to go and I looked for the signs and thought I saw a clear sign. Walked in, there were no urinals. I thought, that is so strange. <laughs> and I walked into a stall, used the restroom, and I heard women's voices everywhere. And I just locked up, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I left the area quickly. And there were a group of men outside that I didn't know that just started dying laughing because they saw me go in and they did not say a word. <laughs> signs, clear signs. They always point to something. 
Uh, um, if we didn't have the signs, I mean, we'd be looking for something like this. Our public restrooms are located at the end of the hallway, just past the water fountain. You find a restroom for women on the right and one for men on the left. Signs don't exist for themselves. Signs always point to something. Ready? That's what's so important about the sign of the first miracle that Jesus does at a wedding by turning water into wine. All the signs of Jesus always point to who he is and why he came. Like, look at the gospel. All the gospel accounts. Like, like how about the feeding of the 5,000? Um, Jesus takes some fish and some bread, multiplies it, and feeds everyone. The sign of the miracle is, I am the bread of life. He's telling everyone, I will meet your deepest need. How about the sign in John 11 with Lazarus when he brings back one of his best friends from the dead? And Lazarus, his two sisters are upset with Jesus because Jesus let him die. Jesus was slow to get to the occasion. If you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to both sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in this? And the sign of the miraculous resurrection was pointing to who he is and why he came. So ask a question. On behalf of this wedding, what does wine at a wedding point to? And this is where it gets to be my favorite. Something much, much bigger than we can imagine. The three parts to the story, there is the hour, there is the water, and there is the feast. The following words that I'm about to read do not resonate for us in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2022 like it did in the first century for everyone that saw it. Because when Jesus did this, the alarms went off in their mind about a prophecy 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Do you notice the details? He on this mountain will create the best of wines, the most fine wine. And when the, ma when the master of the banquet asked the question, why did, you guys, why did you guys keep the best wine until now? Why did you save the finest of wines? For those in this setting in the know, the disciples and Jesus and those that had dipped the water, all of a sudden they knew. It was him. It's Jesus, the promised one. Isaiah and John, they're letting us know that there will be a day of real feast. A day in the best of drinks. The best food that will never grow empty. John 2 is reminding us. Isaiah 25 is reminding us the effects of sin are thorough. It is more than something's wrong all the time. It means something is wrong with everything. I'm telling you because of sin. You feel the weight of this on behalf of what's around the corner at Christmas. Jesus is reminding us what's wrong, what's broken will be mended and what's wrong will be made right. I wish I could tell you the perfect feast right now. But all of our feasts are flawed. Like I wish I could reflect back on Thanksgiving for you. But it wasn't as good this year, right? It's because sin has affected everything. 
It's why some of you are so anxious and worried about the feast called Christmas. Like there's anxiety, there's tension, there's bitterness, there's hurt feelings, there's anger. And John 2 is telling us there is coming a day. Isaiah is reminding us there is coming a day when Jesus, he'll make all this right. And it will be a feast with the best food and the best wine. And all of that awkward stuff will be gone. I'm telling you, even the best feasts on earth bring anxiety. They bring tension. They bring pressure. The best of meals, it's still looming in the back of our head, all the problems at work and what we've got to go back to. But listen to what Isaiah says on the heels of this statement. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And those at the wedding, they got it. Here he is. He saved the finest wine till the last. Now get ready for this. Can I tell you how the Bible begins? Three words. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The writer of Genesis is letting us know that God created. John chapter 2, written by John. Guess what chapter is right before John 2? John 1. Guess what three words start John 1? In the beginning was the word. It's Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. John is telling us that the same God that's involved in the hands-on process of creation is the same Jesus whose hands are involved in recreation. Guys, there is coming a day when the most beautiful feast is going to take place. It's going to be perfect. And doggone, I hate the way culture's painted heaven. Like it's clouds and sitting on clouds and a harp and... We'd be bored in that setting for five minutes. You got it? Understand this. This feast that's coming, there are no more victims, no more villains. No more anxiety, no more stress, no more pressure. No more death, no more disease. No more empty chairs, no more empty rooms. It will be the perfect feast. And out there for the followers of Jesus somewhere He's reminding us through this story, a feast is coming. It's going to be perfect. And so for those in this room that are struggling, you're dreading, you're bothered, I get it. He does too. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. But he's been tempted every way that we have, yet without sin. And so the first miracle, at a wedding? Yeah, it has to do with an hour. Mom, my hour's not yet come. Mom steps in, do whatever he tells you. Has to do with some water, but not that kind of water. Not ceremonial water, like, 
The water that Jesus provides to purify us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this hour that leads to the water, it builds toward a feast. It's been promised for 700 years. It's finally fulfilled when Jesus turns this water into the finest of wines because he cares about a feast. I would like to close with these words written by Tim Keller, an incredible pastor and author that is battling pancreatic cancer. In his book, Encounters with Jesus, he says this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of a wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Out there, somewhere, I'm telling you, a feast is coming. Today with heads bowed and eyes closed. Jesus is the master of the feast. And in John 2, he knows that his suffering is coming. So if you're currently suffering, he wants you to know because of the cross, a feast is coming out there somewhere. I'm telling you, there are some great meals on earth, aren't there? There's some that should be great and they're just not. You know why? Because we're messed up people. I'm messed up, you're messed up, we're sinners. And that's why we sometimes get anxious, nervous, feel the pressure, we dread some of the things around the corner. But this year, what if, what if you looked at it different? What if you embraced the words of Mary? Great words for all of us in life. Just do whatever he tells you. What's he telling you? You need to have a conversation. You need to tell someone you're sorry. You need to forgive someone that never says they're sorry. That some of you today need to surrender to the master of the feast. You need to stop delaying and finally schedule a baptism to go public with your faith. Do you need to start serving? Start being generous. What does it look like to move forward? I want to close with these words for those that are disappointed, for those that are struggling. Pardon my words, but for those that 2022 sucked. This song is for you. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, out there, somewhere, I'm telling you, a feast is coming.